Emotions are contagious, and they're most contagious from the leader outward, because it's very natural in any group. People pay most attention to, put most importance on what the most powerful person in that group says or does. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that sage advice is delivered by author and psychologist Dr. Daniel Goleman, whose books and philosophies have influenced millions of leaders around the world who intuitively understand the power of emotional intelligence. So in today's episode, Goldman shares why our brains developed the way they did, how to regulate emotional hijacking, and the antidote to all of our phone addictions. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Dr. Daniel Goldman. Enjoy. Two state parks. It's nice. Okay, nice. Well, your assistant was telling me, she was like, yeah, you know, there might be a snowstorm coming in. Uh, the Wi-Fi might go out. And I said, no problem. And then this morning I woke up and we had a snowstorm last night. I was like, you know, I think it's Daniel's fault that uh, getting this Wi-Fi out. I think you, you know, it's your fault. You sent yeah, it Yeah, it came to you, not to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Well, Daniel, really excited to have you on the Real Ears podcast today. And thank you everyone for joining. Before we begin real quick, thanks for letting us know where you all are coming in from. This is the Realtors Podcast. We'll have a few links flying in where this episode will be edited and published to all of our platforms on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, but this t- interview today is not about the Realtors Podcast. This re- interview today is about Dr. Daniel Goldman. Doc, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Very happy to have you. So, uh, Doc, I, you know, I, I was I just purchased the uh, the book Emotional Intelligence, which is yeah. like, you know, I guess I guess is what you're known for. However, I always thought it was EQ, but the first two pages I'm in the book and it's like, oh, EQ is something someone else made up with. I I refer to it as EI. Is that true? Well, EQ is kind of a slang. I prefer EI, but most people recognize EQ. EQ became a word in languages, certain languages around the world. I was stunned because that book, Emotional Intelligence, when it first came out, uh, became a worldwide bestseller. And in terms of real leaders, I went on to write about how emotional intelligence affected leadership. Because in the book, Emotional Intelligence, I have a little chapter, Leading with Heart. Uh, I really was trying to argue for teaching this to kids. But so many people from the business world responded to Leading with Heart that I started to look more deeply into well, how does emotional intelligence matter for leadership? And it turns out it matters quite a lot. Now, why do you think that is, Doc? Why do you think so many business leaders are wanting to connect uh, with their heart and, and, and are, are asking for something like this? Well, I think that the emotional intelligence concept articulated, put into words something people knew intuitively. You know that the boss you hate you hate because he lacks emotional intelligence. He's abrasive or he doesn't empathize or he's aloof, whatever it is. The boss you love, the leader you love, has lots of emotional intelligence. People know this. They know it from their own experience. Emotional intelligence, the way I look at it, is self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, how it affects what you do. Managing your emotions, using that awareness to handle your disruptive emotions and to keep your goals in mind, to stay positive, uh, tuning into other people, empathy, very important. If you don't do that, you're going to be off. You're, you'll be clueless. And then putting that all together to have effective relationships. That's what we it's that fourth part that we think of as, uh, you know, leadership quotes. But I think it takes all four to be really effective. Daniel, how did, how did you stumble upon something like this? Now, I know you're a psychologist, but you know, what was some of the work you were doing, uh, studies that you were um, conducting, all the tests? Uh, how did you come across a, a subject like this? Well, actually, I was a science journalist at The New York Times. My job was to read all of the academic journals and find what was right. new, exciting, and relevant. And um, I came upon a, an article in a frankly very obscure journal, so obscure it doesn't exist now, called Emotional Intelligence. 
I thought, wow, that phrase is great. It's so counterintuitive to put emotions together with intelligence. You know, in those days, that was like a radical idea. And I had been, um, I would say, harvesting research on emotions in the brain for about a decade at the New York Times. And I thought this is a great framework for a book that puts that all together. And then I, I looked at what the components were and that fell out to self-awareness, you know, the four I mentioned. And, uh, you know, once I wrote that book, then I got other you know, requests like Harvard Business Review. Will you write about emotional intelligence and leadership? So I wrote an article called um, What Makes a Leader, which was about why leaders need emotional intelligence. It became their most requested reprint in the history of the Harvard Business Review. I was shocked, but it just shows you how high the interest is. And I think how so many people knew intuitively that this was the case. They just wanted someone, namely me, to make the case for them. Do you think it's because leaders are trying to improve themselves? Do you think it's uh, so people like them more so their organizations can thrive more? Why do you think people cling to something such as emotional intelligence? I, I think all of that. Uh, it's that people themselves want to be more effective as leaders. Organizations want their leaders to be more effective. And everybody wants whoever it is they report to to be emotionally intelligent instead of a jerk, frankly. And so uh, I think all of that uh, creates this huge interest in it. And uh, I, I wouldn't name any one of those parts. I think it's all of it. Uh, Doc, one of the questions I like to ask some of the authors that come on the show is, you know, I'm not going to date myself here, but let's just say that book came out around the time I was born. And I know in, in one of your uh, your revisions, you were asking yourself, you ask yourself, you know, what would I change about this? How is leadership changing? How is it evolving? Oh, yeah, How right. has technology come into play, uh, you know, so fast and leaders have to use, um, you know, their brains have been developed over hundreds of thousands of years. What are some of the ways that leadership and emotional intelligence are changing and how might you change your book? Actually, I'm writing a new book about this. I'm just doing an article for HBR, putting it together. And two of the things that I think are important uh, and have uh, put a new emphasis on emotional intelligence, one is the pandemic. Uh, people don't work in the same room that much anymore. They work from home. Not only that, they often meet by Zoom or WebEx, whatever it is. And uh, computers, laptops, are designed for another era. The computer of the future will put the camera right where you, the person you're talking to is so you can have eye contact again. Our, our digital distance has broken eye contact, which is a prime avenue for connection. So one of the things that I'm always asked about is how can emotional intelligence help us uh, keep our connections during this, this digital distancing that we're all going through? And another is now that um, uh, artificial intelligence is taking over this and that and that job, isn't there a new premium on emotional intelligence? And my answer is yes. Just think. If you were really sick, would you rather have at your bedside a robot or a person? There are certain jobs and certain roles that just AI can never fill because it's a machine. It's hardware, it's software. Uh, and that means that there, I think, is going to be a new premium on these abilities to manage emotions, to tune into emotions, and to relate to people effectively. Uh, because of AI, and I think, as, you know, I don't know if work will ever go back to the way it was before. I think more and more people are going to say, hey, I don't have to go to the office, uh, and they're going to work from home. But if they do work from home, I think we need to, we all need to make more effort to be empathic, to tune in. If you're in the same room with someone, if you're next to someone, say at a, a meeting, you sense what they're feeling. You pick up their nonverbals. If someone is on a screen, you've got, what, facial expression, maybe tone of voice. You have to work harder to tune in, to empathize, and that takes emotional intelligence. 
It's interesting. You know, I think you do a really good job of explaining the difference also between IQ and EI or EQ. In IQ, you can say, well, you know, by the time your brain develops when you're 25, your IQ is kind of set, right? You know, but EQ can always improve. So the question of AI and then now emotional intelligence becoming a premium, Hmm. why are we investing so much into tech, to AI, you know, Silicon Valley? It's just, it's growing. It's it's the digital, but less Uh emotional intelligence. Why is that? Well, actually, people are trying to model for AI emotional intelligence. Hmm. And frankly, it's a little clunky. Uh, They're doing an interesting job at Media Lab. But AI models thinking. It models cognition. And that can be uh, done really elegantly. Uh, So AI, when it comes to IQ, by the way, IQ is basically a metric for how rapidly your brain can take in new information. That's really what I can. And it doesn't change much through life. The mid-20s uh, window is actually for emotional intelligence. The emotional and social circuitry of the brain develops throughout childhood and adolescence into the mid-20s. Uh, and then the brain is, is matured. And that's why I argue for putting this in schools so kids get it right in the first place. It's never too late, as you point out to improve emotional intelligence. But after your mid-20s or so, you've got a double job. You've got to unlearn the habits that you learned before, like uh, the common cold of management is poor listening, cutting people off and taking over a conversation. That is a habit you've rehearsed more than 10,000 times. It's, It's unconscious. It's automatic. So you've got to be mindful. Oh, my God, here's a chance for me to change how I listen. And then you have to be intentional to change your habits. So uh, it can be improved, but it takes a little commitment and a little work. Doc, why did our brain develop this way? I know that's kind of a big question, but <laughs> when it comes to emotional response, right. right? when when something happens, my Wi-Fi goes out this morning, why do I get so, oh my gosh, flustered? Uh, I've got to go find the place instead right. of relaxing, staying calm, and everything's going to work out. Yeah, so... Basically, our brain was designed for the jungle. It was designed to detect that rustle in the bushes that might be something that eats us and make us run as fast as we can. Or maybe it's a rustle of something we could eat, so we run after it, but you have to decide instantly. So we have the same architecture of the brain that was designed for the jungle, but modern life is not a jungle. So your tech goes out, And your brain responds with the same emergency activation that was designed and helped us so much when we were surviving on the savanna, when we lived in the jungle. Uh, And today, it just does not help. The brain's radar for threat, the part of the brain that says, oh, my God, I've got a podcast and my Wi-Fi is out. What am I going to do? Is the amygdala. And it, it wants to know, are things okay? It's always asking, am I safe? Mm. All the time. That's a job. And if it thinks there's an emergency, it takes over the executive center, the boss of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and it makes it do what it thinks is necessary. And that gets us in trouble because, for one, our attention fixates on what it defines as the emergency. For another, uh, our memory reshuffles so we can remember best, well, how do I get my Wi-Fi back? And you forget everything else. By the way, if you're having an argument with your loved one and you have two amygdala hijacks going on, I recommend you don't make any big decisions like, why am I with this person? Don't ask yourself that question during the peak of the hijack because you'll get the wrong answer. Wait, because it takes about 20 minutes to reset without any intervention. So wait 20 minutes. So basically... It's a great question. Why do we overreact? It's because our brain was designed for an earlier time. And we're, you know, we don't have brain 2.3. We have brain 1.0. Interesting. Interesting. Now, how much of that decision making is driven by emotional responses such as fear? And how does that play into the business setting? Well, One of the things that triggers, that the amygdala triggers is fear. Another is anger, by the way. These are extremely disruptive emotions. By the way, 
You know, in this world of multitasking and distraction, research shows it's not what's around you that cops your attention. It's your emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you have an emotional hijack, forget it. Fear is what you get as it's part. That's one of the signs of the hijack, particularly if it's realistic fear. Fine. But it usually isn't. Usually it's anxiety. It's worry. Too much fear or fear we can't stop. You know, that thing you're afraid of and you wake up at two in the morning and that thought keeps coming back to you. That's the amygdala. Uh, you know, the, the fear that you hold on to for a couple of weeks. So the answer about work is that this is never beneficial at work. One of the things that leaders need is to be able to manage the disruptive emotions. And by that, I mean, handle your amygdala. Recover from the hijack. You can't determine when you're getting that hijack, but you, you can do things that will help you recover more quickly. That's called resilience. You can become more resilient. It's a learned skill. Or it's a learnable skill. Now, Dr. Goldman, I know resilience comes with also going through a lot of hard times. Understanding you've been there before. When something like this comes up, for instance, COVID, a pandemic hits, lockdowns yeah. start to happen. Businesses have to start making decisions. Yeah. What's going to happen in the future? How can someone regulate their emotions to make conscientious decisions? Sure. Uh, this is an area I've looked at uh, a lot. I did my, my PhD thesis research actually was on stress reactivity. Uh, and so uh, basically, I think that the path that you describe where you've gone through lots of trauma or lots of ordeals or lots of challenges and obstacles can help you recover more quickly next time. Not necessarily, however. You may have the same old reaction you've always had. You may not have learned how to become more resilient. So it turns out there are shortcuts, there are brain hacks that will help you get resilient. In fact, I'll share one with your readers right now. I'm not readers, I'm sorry, listeners right now. And it goes like this. You notice that you're agitated, you want to calm down? Try this. This is what uh, Navy SEALs do, for example. Take a deep breath in so your belly expands. Hold it as long as is comfortable and exhale very slowly. You do that six to nine times and it shifts you from the fight or flight response to the relaxation or recovery response. It changes your physiology and it does it on the spot. Another way you can uh, become more resilient is to do... Um, you know, kind of mind training, sometimes called mindfulness, like focusing on your breath, you know, watching the full in-breath and the full out-breath. And when your mind wanders off, bring it back to the breath. The key here is when you notice your mind wandered and you bring it back. That's like when you go to the gym and every time you lift a weight, you make that muscle with every rep, you make it a little more, a little stronger. Every time you bring your mind back, you are making the neural circuitry for focus that much stronger. But there's a twofer. It turns out that the same neural circuitry that helps you concentrate on your breath is a circuitry that helps you calm down when you're overly upset. So what this means is you eventually it's a dose response. The more you do it, the better the effect. But uh, eventually you get triggered less often. If you do, you get triggered less strongly. And then you recover more quickly, which is the definition, as I said, of resilience. It seems like meditation, kind of what you just had described, this deep breathing, this focus, understanding where your mind is going, seems to be some sort of antidote for this attention economy that we live in with all of these distractions happening, going on. We ran a team meeting today and I said, listen, I don't want anyone looking at anything else today. Try to stay focused. And it was really difficult for everybody. <laughs> Very difficult. And this happened. Uh -huh. We do this once a week, every week. Uh -huh. Do you think that mindfulness is an antidote to the chaos of attention that's taken away from our focus? I know it is. I just, finished, I just published a book a year or two ago called Altered Traits, uh, which looks at the more than 6,000 peer-reviewed studies on this kind of mind training. 
Uh, we we looked. I, I did it with the neuroscientists at the University of Wisconsin. We looked at the best sixty top journals, best methodology. And what it shows is that pretty much from the beginning, mindfulness helps you get more calm, as I said, and also more focused. One of the most interesting studies, to speak to your point, was done at Stanford with multitasking. You know, when you're focused on something really important, this project I've got to get done, and your concentration is pretty ramped up. And then you, you get a ping and, oh, I've got an email or a text. I better check that. And then while you're there, you check all your emails and then you go online and you look at Twitter and you do Facebook or what, you know, you multitask, as we call it. Then you go back eventually to that one thing that's so important where your attention was up here. Now it's down here and it takes you quite a while to ramp up again, unless you did 10 minutes of mindfulness, that breath exercise. Then it turns out you're very close to top concentration. So basically what that says is that attention and focus and the ability to ignore distractions is a trainable skill. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Hmm, I love that. I love that. So, so simple, but also so hard. It's very difficult sometimes, especially for people starting out meditating, just to stay focused just on one thing, breathing, as simple as breathing. You know, there are many kinds of meditation, and there's a a lore that says the very best meditation is the one you will do. It doesn't matter. It's just, you know, just do it every day if you can. Do it before you go to work, get up a little earlier, whatever. I always have uh, some tea before I meditate. I do it first thing in the morning. Find a time, just make it a priority. It's like working out. If you made that a priority, you can do it with mind training, too. It's, it's the same thing. And the more you do it, the more you make it priority, the more it's going to work. And it may be difficult at first. Uh, a very common complaint is my mind is crazy. I have so many thoughts I could never concentrate. That's actually a good sign. It means you're starting to notice the way your mind is ordinarily. Mm. Everybody gets that. So just keep going. Keep going. It gets better. Now, Doc, I know your uh, good acquaintances with the 14th Dalai Lama, His Holiness. Mm. I know you're also a fan of Eastern and Western uh, philosophies. Uh, how can do you see any similarities between those two type of philosophies of a way of life of the Ying, the Yang, the the Buddhist, uh, the Taoist? The can you, is there something that you well, can bring to our audience today that you think would be helpful? Well, I think that there's a lot of overlap, but they're not the same. They have different goals. And uh, one question is, how do you regard yourself? Is it just you? Our our culture tends to be very individualistic. So it's about me and making my way or my success. However, there's another way of looking at the self, which is that it's relational. You're connected to all kinds of people, your family, your company, your team. And their, your success means their success, or their success means your success. Those are actually two different ways of looking at the world. And I would say Eastern philosophies tend to look at the second one, to look at the self in a larger sense, a more connected sense. And that uh, has lots of implications for how you lead your life and who you care about and who you are concerned about. You know, there are three kinds of empathy. There's Cognitive empathy, I know how you think. Emotional empathy, I know how you feel. And then there's one called empathic concern. I care about it. It's the way a parent feels about a child. But you can feel that way about people in your life, about people you work with. It's, you know, sometimes it becomes compassion. It certainly is concern, caring. And that's a kind of a larger self. And I, I uh, think that that's a kind of a gift from Eastern philosophies to the West. Because the West has been historically very caught up with the, the individual self and individual success. So it's a larger picture. Uh, another thing that I like that the Dalai Lama says, you know, if things are bad and you can do something about it, why worry? If things are bad and you can't do something about it, why worry? 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and you know, I, I had heard that from one of your your speeches, and that's why when my whole team was giving me a call, it's like, oh, you got to figure out this Wi Fi. I just like, no, we're not going to worry about this. It'll work out. Everything's going to work out. It worked out like, fine. I, we got to yeah. get this in our mindset. Well, you know, there's another saying. This is from the West. Will Shakespeare said, "All's well that ends well." <laughs> we ended well. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. You know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's an interesting one. I think I read somewhere that, you know, he contributed to over like 40% of the words in the English dictionary, something like that. Could, could be. I have no idea. Yeah. You have no, I'm not surprised. You know, it's it's interesting. And, and, you know, back to, you know, the evolution of language, the evolution of your mind, you know, could you maybe dive more into the science behind the development of our brain and kind of why we feel right now in this state when we're kind of isolated, we're locked in, we feel like we got to go somewhere, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, there are different parts or there's different webs of circuitry in the brain and they evolve for good reasons, but they evolved in a context when we lived with about a hundred people. It was our group. And they, an important part of the brain is called the social brain. It's the prefrontal, was designed to link brain to brain to the person you're with and create a, a brain to brain bridge that is automatic, unconscious, and instantaneous. And it tells you what that other person is doing or feeling. And today, when we're all isolated, that part of the brain is in trouble. Because it isn't face-to-face. As, and I, I said before, we have to make more effort to tune into the people around us. But because mm-hmm. the brain wasn't designed for the reality we're living right now. So we're making the best of it. And in fact, uh, there's a degradation. Emotion channels are really important for the brain. And they're maximal when we're face-to-face. If we had a holograph of the person we're interacting with, that would be pretty good. Uh, on Zoom or WebEx or whatever your preferred platform is, uh, there's a degradation. But then there's less on a phone call. But a phone call is pretty good because voice carries lots of emotion. Mm. The worst is text only. If you text someone or email them, uh, it can easily lead to flaming. Flaming occurs when one of you is having an uh, amygdala hijack and you start typing furiously a message and you hit send and then the the telltale sign of flaming is you wish you hadn't done it you regret what you just said uh, and you know it can lead to what are called flame wars where one person's flaming triggers another person flaming back I, I remember uh, two uh, sets of engineers in a European city uh, their companies had an alliance to develop a product together, but they never met each other. They just emailed back and forth, and pretty soon it disintegrated into flame wars. And uh, this consultant was called in, and you know what he did? He got them together, have some beers over the weekend. And it just changed the thing, because if you know the person, then you're less likely to fall into flaming or to take a flame as personal. You know, oh, it's just Charlie, he's that way. It, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm, I am a culprit of flaming. There's no doubt about it, especially with a few emails that I've uh, regretfully sent. And but you know, we learn from those, right? Dan? we learn from those. Well, we hope better. we do. But I have some advice for listeners: don't send emails late at night, or if you've been drinking, wait mm-hmm. till the next day, because you'll be clear. Yeah. Why? Anyway, why is so. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it's, it's wise advice. It's wise advice. Maybe, maybe anything. Don't don't do much when you're drinking. <laughs> um, other than I don't know, socialize. But uh, you, you brought this interesting story about this bus driver that you love to share. Oh yeah, right. And, and I love I love you to share that before I kind of go into this. I don't like telling other people's stories for them. Well, I started the book Emotional Intelligence with a story about a bus driver on Madison Avenue in New York City. It's a hot, humid day. I'm waiting for the bus. And like everyone else in the city, I have this bubble, this invisible bubble around me. Don't touch me. Don't talk right, to me. Right. And I get on the bus with my bubble intact. And then the driver really does something shocking to me. He looks at me and he says really warmly, 
how's your day going? Like he cares. This is like, uh, you know, a connection that I wasn't expecting. Then I get on the bus and I realize he's talking to everyone on the bus. You're looking for suits. There's a great sale over here and departments join your right. And, uh, you, you know, did you see the great exhibition in this uh, museum on the left? And, oh, the, the Cineplex on the right. I know the one in Cinema 6 got great reviews, but I saw the one in Cinema 3. That's really good. On and on. Then people get off the bus and he'd wave to me and say, I hope your day is wonderful. And he said it like he meant it. That guy was an urban saint. Then I found out years later, I didn't write about this. I found out years later when he died, they did an obit in the Times. His name was Govan Brown. He was a pastor of a black church on Long Island. And he felt that the people on his bus were part of his flock. He was mm. taking care of them. When he retired, from being a bus driver, they threw a party for him. They had never done it in the history of the Transit Authority. 300 devoted passengers came. He got more than 3,000 letters of commendation, not one complaint. That guy was outstanding. And by the way, I think he was outstanding because he had a deep sense of purpose. And he found a way to make his job meaningful in terms of what was meaningful for him. And I think that goes for anybody. Uh, for a leader, for example, if you can articulate what matters to you about what we're doing in a way that resonates with the people you're leading and inspires them too, then you get people's best efforts. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a lesson for leadership. It's not just for bus drivers. Daniel, how infectious is something like that? I mean, is there any uh, science that's backed around the spread and the contagiousness of a positive personality and someone that's able to connect with you like that? Absolutely. There's a lot of research out of Yale, the Yale School of Management, where uh, they looked at team leaders. If you're leaders in a very positive, upbeat, enthusiastic mood, people on the team catch that mood. Performance goes up. If, people, if the leader of a team is bummed out, angry, anxious, whatever it is. People on the team catch that mood, the performance goes down. So emotions are contagious, and they're most contagious from the leader outward, because it's very natural in any group. People pay most attention to, put most importance on what the most powerful person in that group says or does. Now, uh, also, this is something you can build upon connecting. Mm. I, 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 for one, know during these conversations, being locked in like this is one of my favorite things to do. It's what I think I'm best at and what I, what I, what I enjoy the most. Being direct in a conversation like this, and it seems to translate outside of the world. And people come to me and says, "Man, you really, you really do listen. You know, you really are a podcaster. You really like mm, to have these conversations." Mm. How does someone that maybe isn't a podcaster can practice uh, something like this, such as attentive listening? Well, remind yourself that uh, it doesn't help to be telling people. It helps to be listening first. And as I said, the common cold of leadership, of management, is taking over the conversation before you've really heard out the other person. So the, the big challenge is to be fully present, which means you want to know what the other person is thinking and feeling. And then you want to respond to that. Then the person feels felt, feels heard, and you get full information. So from a leadership point of view, I think it's an essential skill. Uh, what about for the people that may label themselves as introverts who may not want to be bothered? Like you said, you were in the kind of the bubble when you came on that mm, bus that day mm, mm. and you, you didn't really want to be bothered. What about some of the introverts listening to this right now that, you know, like if I was on that bus, I, I wouldn't say anything. I'd probably just carry on without, you know, with my business. Uh, so Kevin, uh, I'm going to plug in my computer while I think about the yeah, answer take your time. really good question. Take your time. And, and you know, while, while uh, you're doing that doc, you know, I just, I just think this thing right here is just such a, such <laughs> a pain in this movement. No, I'm serious. Cause I, you know, I, I was telling you, I've, I've 
flew to Central Oregon from San Diego a couple days ago, and I'm at this airport, and it was the most dead that airport had ever been in my lifetime. People on their phones, and it used to be, you know, uh, children, you know, we're going to grow up like apes, and the evolution (laughs) is here, and then we're back on our phones like this, right? That's how it used to be, and then, then you actually see it. And this flight, in, this flight attendant's given a, you know, the protocols of how to put on your mask sure, and sure. life or death situations. Yeah. And everyone's on everyone's the phone. The and I, I'm yeah. looking around just like, I'm the only one paying attention. <laughs> I'm sure people have heard it a million times, but still, just, yeah. just to the point of, you know, the attention economy, mm-hmm. you know, people are distracted from maybe what's really important. That's a wonderful question. Do you want me to go back to the one about introverts? Please, please, this- yes. Yeah. Go wherever you want. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I think that a lot of leadership has to do with finding your own style that fits your comfort level. So people who are introverted uh, may not want to go out and network, but still they can be very focused in a one-on-one conversation. And really that's, I think, the core of leadership. It's not networking. It's being fully present to the person you're with, which gets me to cell phones because they are our best friends and our worst enemy at the same time. You know, they're fabulous because Google will tell you anything that you want to know right away. You can reach out to anybody. You can, you know, send that message that you forgot before you left to the person that needs to get it today. And yet all of our Worst distractions are in the same device. So they're constant temptations to ignore that lady telling you what to do in a life or death situation and play that video game or whatever it is you're doing on your phone. Uh, And I think it's one of the bigger problems of our time. I worry about kids who have grown up never knowing a time You couldn't ignore everyone and everything around you and focus on the small screen on that small device in front of you because the social and emotional parts of the brain were designed to be shaped in childhood by interactions, by hanging out with other kids, by interacting with your parents, your siblings, your family, uh, anyone. That's what helps a child grow to be able to manage their own emotions and to connect well with other people. So I worry uh, about today's kids. And this actually, for me, is an argument for what we call social emotional learning, where you teach kids the gamut of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, empathy, social skill, because you want to be sure they're going to get it. And it doesn't take that much time, hardly any time, actually, from the core academic subjects. There are more than 100 curricula, and it shows that, in fact, it improves academic achievement test scores by 11%. Because if you help kids manage their own emotions and handle their relationships better, those are the things that upset kids. Those are the things that distract kids. So now they can actually pay attention to what the teachers say, what they're having to learn. So it's a win-win. So uh, I recommend CASEL, C-A-S-E-L dot org. It's a collaborative for academic, social and emotional learning uh, to see if your school district or the school your child goes to might want to bring it in if they don't have it. And, And that's the key word right there, goes to, right? Goes to. We're at home right now. A lot of students are at home. I think this is the first yeah, time. At least I got little cousins in school right now, Doc. And yeah. it's the first time I've heard, oh, we want to go back to school. We want to go back to school because they miss you know, that kids, social need. They miss their friends. School is not about academics for kids. Right. It's ha- half or more of it is hanging out with their friends. And I've got grandchildren who are really missing school because they're doing it online. They say it's just not the same. And it isn't mm. the same. You know, it's the core, it's the academics, but it's not the social life. It's not the social learning that that kids get in school. So uh, that's another deficit over and above what cell phones or video is doing to today's kids. It's what's happening because of the pandemic. The fact that kids are now isolated at home 24-7. Or maybe they have a small pod. One of my granddaughters has a pod with her best friend, which is good. But still, she misses the other kids. 
And again, folks, it's castle.org. C-A-S-E-L.org. See, there it is. Got a link flying in there. Wonderful. Uh, It also kind of drives me to this this notion of media in today's day and age like mm. it's one of the most ongoing topics of today's you know pop culture media what's wrong with it now daniel you worked in the new york times what do you think big institutions like this can do to contribute to uh, a movement of empathy a movement of emotional intelligence that's a really interesting question because of the balkanization of groups on the media. Uh, there are many, many people who ignore the mainstream media, don't believe it. Uh, and so I'm not sure what the media could be doing. I think that delivering the news in new ways is important. For example, your podcast is a good model of an emerging reality. It's very intimate. It's like re- old time radio. When I was a kid, you'd listen to the radio. That, you know, the family would actually gather around the radio. And it's a very intimate medium. Podcasts are the new radio. I just started a podcast, I should say. It's called right. First Person Singular. Uh, and it's just getting off the ground. I decided to do a podcast for the reason you're saying. Because it's a way of delivering information pretty quickly. And in a very person-to-person intimate way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's you and the person listening. So, Kevin, there's a certain power to a podcast that you don't get in a newspaper. You don't get in online news uh, because, as I said, voice. Remember, when I was talking about the phone. Voice carries a huge amount of emotional tone. And I think that adds to the information, uh, just the pure cognitive content right. that you're putting out. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a good point. You know, the long form of a podcast really lets people digest information, listen slowly. Right. And it's just something different nowadays. I've had it kind of described as social media, like skipping a rock across the lake. It just hits kind of the top, but doesn't right. really go right. to the bottom, which alludes right. to your point as well about children reading books. It's so difficult for them to do now. They're having a hard time getting from page yeah. one to page 300 because it's because it's just not in front of them. Yeah. It's not a quick read for them. I was talking to a teacher who has taught the same book for years. Mm. And she said in the last five years or so, there's been an obvious decrement in the ability of her students to understand the same book, you know, and you right. hear it from from college teachers. People can't write in a short essay anymore. Uh, there is definitely a degradation it worries me because I wonder if it reflects uh, degradation in thinking. Uh, but it certainly reflects the inability to master a form. And maybe it's an old form. I'm open to that. Maybe now it's all going to be spoken word or video, or that's the new form. Maybe we're going. We're just morphing. I know Socrates was upset when they started uh, having, uh, you know, printed words. were not even printed in his day. They were written. Written language, he thought, would be the end of memory. So, you know, every generation that's used to the old format uh, despairs at the new format. Maybe we're at that kind of cusp. I hope so. And I hope it'll be just as rich as former kinds of information. I also hope that the old ways don't go away. I write books. I still write books. Actually, uh, book sales have gone up, oddly enough, during the pandemic. That's right. But I don't know about demographics. I don't know if younger people are reading books. But reading a book is one of the best things a child can do for that child's brain. Yeah. It, it, and to go on that point as well, you know, it's like, oh, we can just Google it now. Right. It's like that whole thing. Like, oh, like why learn yeah. these things so we can just Google? Well, really, you're sacrificing the memory, the knowledge, the repetition. Well, there's understanding of it. That, but there's more, Kevin. That is, sure. you know, uh, Since there's been culture, we've been having people tell us stories. Those stories create a reality for us. Many of those stories, so-called myths, are stories about how the world began, what's important, what's not important, what we value as a people, why we do this or that. And I think stories, particularly for leadership, by the way, stories are very important. It's a leadership tool to tell a powerful story about your company, 
about how it started, why it started, what purpose does it have? What meaning does it have? What are our values? You can embed that in the story and people learn it very powerfully if it is embedded in the story. And I think kids today still need stories, whether they're getting them through podcasts or through video or by reading. It's, it's a very important way that cultures uh, continue themselves, that they pass on what's important. Daniel, what makes a good story to you? <laughs> uh, to me, I think that there's a, uh, a good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end that people can follow easily. It has a, a lot of emotion in it so that people get involved in it. And it has a punchline so people learn something from it. That's what I think is a good story, just off the top of my head. Well, I love it. Now, Dan, you also mentioned you're starting this podcast up. Right. And now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, this podcast is with your son. Uh, yeah, uh, my son Hanuman is, has a master's actually in audio uh, and uh, we're doing it together. We're co-hosting Hanuman Goldman is his name. Daniel Goldman is my name. First person plural is the name Love of the it. podcast. And it's emotional intelligence and beyond, because uh, as time has gone on, I've seen that emotional intelligence has lots of implications for many, many different areas of life. And I love exploring that. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing in the podcast. Kevin, thank you for giving me a chance to let your listeners know about uh, First Person Plural. My podcast. It, it just started. I mean, it got a couple episodes on there right now. Uh, I only, really enjoyed only, the first one. Oh, only good. Two, yeah. only two, right? Yeah. Only two really, right now, but yeah. we have many more in the pipeline. Many more in the future. More to come, yeah. folks. Right. Well, I, I wanted to bring that up because uh, I want to ask you this question. What one's better, doing a podcast with your son or writing a book with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> Apples and oranges. They're both great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope it works out for you all. It's it's an interesting journey. Uh, are you going to have guests on that podcast? Do you plan oh, absolutely. A psychologist, I, and that's awesome. Yeah. One of the guests I really enjoyed was a woman named Lori Santos. She did that happiness course uh -huh. at Yale that became their most popular course ever. Uh, you know, she's fantastic. I did a, a podcast on uh, constructive anger with a guy named Rod Owens. Lama Rod Owens is black. He's overweight. He's gay. He's had a lot of discrimination in his life and he's overcome it. And he can talk about what is constructive anger. Well, basically, it's um, anger plus compassion. Mm. And the Dalai Lama talked about that, too. So the book I wrote with the Dalai Lama is a force for good, which is really about his vision for our world. But I found it very influential. I'd like to be I'd like to be like him when I grow up. Yeah, don't we all, right? Now, <laughs> now, anger is now and also an interesting emotional trait to think about because anger we all think is bad. But I know the Dalai Lama had mentioned that well, anger can actually be good if you channel it the right way. What did he mean by that? Well, first of all, anger basically arises when a goal is thwarted. There's an obstacle. Mm. Something gets in our way. Something screws up. Somebody says something that you know triggers us, or whatever it may be. Anger in evolution has been very positive within reason. The trouble is when anger explodes and, and uh, makes us do things without reason. That's destructive anger. We harm ourselves. We harm our relationship. We harm other people. That's no good. So the Dalai Lama said anger is useful. Keep the focus. Keep the energy. Keep the persistence. Keep the motivation. Give up the hatred. Give up the negativity. That way, he said, you'll make a smarter decision. You'll find a constructive way to get what you want, which is really your goal, rather than just to, like, pay back. That's, you know, the seduction of destructive anger. Mm. This, I think the saying goes, you know, what it was Marcus Aurelius, he said, you know, what gets in the way becomes the way. Uh -huh. kind of a stoic approach to uh -huh. overcoming obstacles. But you mentioned the force for good. And it's funny you say that because uh, we interview impact organizations, organizations oh, are intentionally yeah. trying to solve a social sure. or environmental problem. Sure. And sure. As they grow in scale, they solve that problem more. Now they consider themselves a force for good. What would you want 
from business leaders listening to this right now, what advice would you give to them and how you would like to see their organizations being used as a force for good? Well, I, I think uh, there's a lot of potential there because, frankly, I feel that business is a, a, actually a greater force than government. Government can change policy, oh, but it's restricted to its national boundary. Business is international. It's global. Uh, I think it's important to remember that there are leaders in businesses of all kinds. Smaller to mid-sized businesses actually add more jobs than major businesses. You know, we think about the, the big multinationals, but they actually employ fewer people than smaller businesses globally. And there's, every business has its leader and its set of leaders, and every business has its impacts. Uh, I was very impressed by Paul Pullman, who is the former CEO of Unilever, who set wonderful goals for Unilever while he was CEO. And the next guy who's CEO says he's going to follow them. Uh, they're going to bring a half million small farmers into their supply chain to give them stable income. They were set really amazing environmental goals and so on. So that's great. If a large company assesses its real impacts, and there's been a, a little bit of a fiction um, that accountants have sold to businesses, which is called externalities, which means that your environmental impacts don't count. They're someone else's problem. I say, bullshit. They're your problem. If they're your impacts, they're your responsibility. And also, I've been tracking interesting data that shows that Gen Z and millennials care more than any generation in the past about those impacts from companies which means that who they want to work for, and this is about attracting talent, who they want to buy from, this is about market share, will be determined in the future by the company that has the least negative environmental impacts. And that means that you better start paying attention to that now. Be the first mover in your sector because then you'll have that advantage and you can you also need to get impartial verification of impacts because people, young people particularly, don't trust you to measure your own impacts. Uh, there's something called Earthster, earthster.org, that's just starting, which uses life cycle assessment as a state-of-the-art way to measure impacts and will help you verify what your impacts are, find a better way to fix your supply chain or whatever it is, your ingredients, uh, how you do business, and show people objectively by an impartial measure you're doing it. So that has to do with impacts for everybody, but particularly for the big ones. For the littler, smaller companies, I think that being aware of your impacts, being a B Corp, for example, or uh, thinking about uh, is there a way we're helping people? Is there a way we're helping the environment? And to keep that in mind, to demonstrate it uh, for any leader at any size company is not only good ethically, I think it's a business imperative, particularly going into the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, like you said, uh, evolving and changing to uh, present day and age with our emotional intelligence is also just like capitalism, like our phones. Oftentimes, uh, our phones need to be updated. And when you think about productivity, storytelling from a leadership perspective, millennials and Gen Zers, they just want transparency. And if your organization yeah. is transparent in what you do, you know, they're going to come to your organization. They're going to be, be mission aligned. They're going to be more productive in the workplace. It just manifests throughout the whole company. Well, I think they want transparency plus, Kevin. They want yes, transparency absolutely. plus good intention. Yes. And they want proof of that intention that you're doing. You're not just saying it, greenwashing, but you actually believe it. You're no, acting no, on it. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. I've, yeah. I've building this course right now, Daniel. It's called the Impact Methodology. I, oh, intention, good. M, Model, no. P, Profitability, A, Accountability, C, customers and T transformation. Now, accountability yeah. is something you talked about earlier. And that is this fictional idea of accountability. Well, what are we responsible for? Yeah. Are we just responsible well, for our assets and liabilities or are we responsible and do we take more accountability for our impact on the environment, our impact on society, wages, the community, all of those things? Why aren't we tracking in today's day and age? I love that. And I recommend you chapter five in Force for Good. 
Because the Dalai Lama agrees with you. Yeah. Does Chapter he? five, uh, he talks about transparency, responsibility, and accountability mm-hmm. as essentials. And it sounds like it's absolutely what you're saying. Now, Daniel, what about profitability in a Dalai Lama, though? Why, does he think profitability is, is dangerous? I think that he would agree that everybody needs to make enough profit that uh, you feed yourselves well, that you have money to invest uh, in your company to grow it, that you give people a decent salary. I don't think he's in favor of billionaires, actually. Uh, I don't think he sees any reason for a person to keep amassing wealth for wealth's sake. He does say people only have one stomach. And what do you need all of that for? So in a way, he's a little bit subversive. He would like a compassionate capitalism. Interesting. You know, because I think like profitability is like you can solve more problems that way. I think people have also this mindset of nonprofits. You know, to me, it's it's tough to sustain something like that. You know, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. And he would agree with you if you use those profits for good. Right. If you just if you just use those profits to get a bigger bank account, I don't think he would agree. Mm. So, you know, that's that that's a little contrary to the kind of uh, way capitalism is playing out today. Interesting. Interesting. And I'll give the example of let's just take an intention. Right. We talked about intention ending Mm. single use plastic in a business. So let's say you have a a reusable straw. Right. Right. So now you're eliminating all those people that hold those straws. They no longer have to buy a straw by making more money and selling more products and investing them more products that end single use and making more profits for their own organization. They are intentionally solving that problem even more. Would the Dalai Lama disagree with that? No, I don't think he would because they're putting the profit back in the solution. And by the way, Uh, I'm, I'm an advocate of uh, something called the Plastic Pollution Coalition, oh, which that? is pla- Plastic Pollution Coalition, which is against okay. single-use plastics, trying to get towns, states, countries to ban them because you know where they end up? They end up in the ocean. They end up in us. They end up in animals. They kill fish. Uh, plastics never decompose completely because the petroleum oil and water don't mix so plastics in the ocean end up in little beads tiny microscopic beads called nurdles and those nurdles are eaten by everyone there if you eat fish you're eating nurdles and i happen to love fish actually so uh it's it's a question of saving ourselves and by the way this is another issue that i think future generations will evaluate companies on how they relate to plastics. The petroleum industry is putting lots of money into plastic plants because they see that the use of plastic for vehicles and so on is dropping, but the manufacture of plastics is increasing. So they're increasing their capacity, but I think that it will bump up against the fact that younger people particularly know that plastics in the environment are no good for anyone. And that's where they all end up. And so I think they will start penalizing companies that don't do what you're saying. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, all these products are going to outlast us for generations. They, they're going to be here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And to think that, you know, these microplastics like babies are being born with plastic in them. Yeah, Just think about that for a second. It's very sad. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, each of us has a... a uh, a physiological load of industrial chemicals. Plastics is part of that. They, the body was not designed for any of them, but we're carrying mercury in our body, we're carrying lead, we're carrying all kinds of toxic chemicals. And uh, it's in part because the government grandfathered their use in. In Europe, a lot of chemicals that industry would want to use are illegal not in the U.S. That's just another area where we've got to get better uh, at protecting people, not just companies. 
So Doc, with all this in mind, uh, the existential questions, uh, the internal questions, um, we, we've covered so much today from our mindset mm. to, to what's mm. actually happening out there in the world today. So with all this in mind, let's bring this home, Doc. What is your definition of a real leader? I think that a leader is anyone who has a sphere of influence. We're all leaders in our own lives. Uh, maybe with your kids, your family, your friends. That's a sphere of influence. You can change how people think, how they see the world, what they do, what they believe. Uh, and if you go into an organization, that sphere enlarges. If you're a designated leader, then you have a particular scope of leadership. Maybe your team, your division. You may be um, an emergent leader, which is someone who's not the explicit leader, but who's very influential. It means people listen to you, that what you say matters to people. So I equate leadership with influence. Well said, Doc. Well, I just want to appreciate you coming on the show. Hopefully, you can stick around to answer a few of our guest questions. Lovely Happy guest to. questions flying in here for Dr. Daniel Goldman. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Be your own sphere of influence. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Doc. Great. Thanks. My pleasure, Kevin. And thank you. Good people for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Dr. Daniel Goldman. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know by now, all of these episodes are streamed live for your enjoyment on Crowdcast and on our LinkedIn channels. All you got to do is go online to realleaders.com slash podcast where you can RSVP for an upcoming episode with people like Michael Fronti, Seth Goldman, or Shadi Bakor, the CEO of Pathwater. Again, folks, realleaders.com slash podcast where you can RSVP and be a part of the conversation. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.